0: I'd ask if you please stand with me at a reverence for the word of our Lord, as we look at our passage. Luke chapter twenty, and uh, it's only going to go as far as as verse um, as verse forty there, but I'm going to go all the way down to verse forty-four. As it's, it's uh, I actually think that that it, it fits well with the rest of this passage. Luke, Luke chapter twenty. Verses 27 to 44. There came to him some Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob and, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For he himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? This is The word of God, may he write its eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we consider this passage of scripture, as we consider the most important answers to the most important questions, help us to look by your grace in the power of your Spirit, to your Word, to understand what we should be asking and to be seeking answers from you. May you work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to understand these things and to believe these things and to walk in the truth of these things. Help us, all of us, Lord, to have the right questions and the right answers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, I read Douglas Adams' four-book trilogy and you'll see his math is is not good because it got a four-book trilogy, but his four-book trilogy, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, I couldn't recommend the novels now, but Adams, who is an atheist, writes that the earth is actually a, a giant supercomputer designed to determine the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. In the the stories, they already know the answer to the ultimate question is the number 42. And so he says that the earth was designed to, to figure out the question. But the problem is that the earth is destroyed by the aliens called Vogons to make way for an intergalactic superhighway five minutes before the solution is discovered. And Arthur Dent, the protagonist, survives by hitching a ride on the Vogon spaceship with his friend Ford Prefect. can't believe I'm actually talking about these things in the pulpit. But Arthur Dent randomly pulls Scrabble tiles out of a bag and out of doing this is able to determine the question of life, the universe, and everything. So as he pulls out these Scrabble tiles one by one, he gets the words to the question. And so the question is, the ultimate question, if you wanted to know, please don't soundbite this, if you wanted to know the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. Again, the answer is 42, but the question is, what do you get when you multiply six by nine? So you see what Adam is saying. He's saying the answer is 42, 42. The ultimate answer to everything is 42 and the question is what do you get when you multiply 6 by 9? He's saying that it doesn't make sense. Now it makes sense that for Adams it wouldn't make sense because Adams was an atheist. For Adams nothing makes sense. Douglas Adams is asking the wrong questions and he's looking in the wrong place for the answers. So he's never going to get the right answer, he's never going to get the right questions. But it isn't just atheists. Adherents of of every religion, every religion except one, are asking the wrong questions and looking in the wrong place for the answers. Now, that might sound like a a narrow-minded response, and it is. But the reality is that there are truths in some religions. If they are true, then the other religions are necessarily false. You, You can't have it both ways. It's not, the truth is not relative. There's only one truth, and and if and if atheism is true, then every other religion is wrong. If Islam is true, then every other religion is wrong. There is only one truth, and so whether it's it's so we would say that as as Christians, and this is the truth that whether it's Buddhists looking in the Tripitaka to discover how to reach Nirvana, or Muslims looking in the Quran to discover how to reach Jannah or Hindus looking in the Vedas to discover how to reach varga they're all asking the wrong questions and looking in the wrong places for the wrong answers in our studies of Luke over the past few weeks we've seen how Jesus has been dealing with questions It's a final exam, so to speak, speak, as as the examiners, hostile examiners, question Jesus. It's the final week of his ministry on earth before these men would hand him over to the Romans to crucify him, to kill him. And as Jesus taught in the, the temple in the final week before his crucifixion, they came to him, asking him question after question. The Sanhedrin, the the religious ruling council. The Pharisees. And the Herodians. They were spies. Now we'll see it's the Sadducees coming against Jesus. We'll see the scribes here as well. So they came after Jesus, asking these questions, expecting him to fail. Because in their minds, there were no right answers to their questions. They were, they were trying to trap him. They couldn't destroy him, yet because of his popularity with the people. So they asked him questions designed to discredit him before the people, and even before the Romans, so that they could be rid of him once and for all. So the Sanhedrin had been silenced. The spies had been silenced. And now the Sadducees and the scribes are going to be silenced. Again and again, Jesus silenced his enemies with his answers. And more than that, he taught us important, vitally important principles through his answers. We've seen already that that Jesus taught us the, the, the heavenly source of his authority. Through answering their questions. He taught us how to relate to earthly authority as under God's authority in answer to their questions. Now these are important principles and we need to understand them, perhaps more now than any other time in our lives. But the two answers we're going to hear this morning are the answers to the two most important questions we face as human beings are none, the two most important answers that exist. Now, people might say these these same things to you in other ways, but no one will say anything more important to you than what you are about to hear. They're important not because they come from my lips, but because they come from Holy Scripture and hear from the lips of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. So these are two vitally important answers. And the answers, I'll give you the answers before we hear the questions. The answers are eternal life and Jesus Christ. These are the two answers, eternal life and Jesus Christ. The first answer comes from the wrong question posed by Jesus' enemies. And the second answer comes from a question that Jesus asks his enemies. And if you were here as a Christian this morning, you know that these two answers are integrally re- related. That the answers of, of, you cannot answer the answer of eternal life without considering Jesus Christ. And you cannot consider Jesus Christ without, conti- without considering eternal life. And you know that the only way that you will find these answers is is through the truths of God's word you will find these answers by looking in the Bible. So if you want to understand the right answers and to get the right questions you need to understand the scriptures. but asking the right questions and getting the right answers is, is not merely ad, adherence to a particular doctrinal position. It's not all about having your your theological ducks in a row. The Sadducees, as we're going to see, are wrong pretty much across the board. But the Scribes, who we'll talk about later, are correct about the resurrection and resurrection life, but they're wrong about how you get there and by whom. A lot of people have good doctrine. That part's easy. People can answer the theological questions correctly without knowing the answer personally. In other words, they could tell you how to have eternal life, but they won't receive eternal life because they do not know Jesus Christ personally. So in this morning, we're going to see that there are three key sections in our passage. Verses 27 to 33, the wrong question. Verses 34 to 40, the right answer. And then in verses 41 to 44, the right question. So the wrong question, the right answer, and the right question. So, first of all, the wrong question. Verses 27 to 33. So on the heels of Jesus silencing the spies that had come to try and entrap him, the spies who had been sent by, remember, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees now come to challenge Jesus. Now, as we talked about with the, the children, the the. the The Sadducees are known for a particular doctrinal position. There's not a whole lot that's known about them because they really ceased to have any position or any authority with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But the Sadducees were part of the Sanhedrin. They were were part of, again, the Jewish ruling council that sought to destroy Jesus. And the the, the Sadducees were were aristocrats, and, and they were the ones that held the positions of power in the ruling council the high priests were selected from among the Sadducees. The Sadducees liked power. They liked prestige. They liked wealth. And the Sadducees were actually willing to cooperate with the Romans and the Roman occupation of Israel because they liked what they had. And under Roman authority, they could still keep their power and their, their prestige and their wealth. As they worked with the Romans, they compromised with the Romans. They emphasized the the Torah, the the first five books of the Old Testament, especially the Mosaic laws. And so they were were morally conservative. But they were theologically unorthodox, denying much of the clear teaching of the Torah, as we'll see. And Luke here gives us a, a piece of editorial information about the Sadducees. He said that they deny that there is a resurrection. He said to the kids that the Sadducees were see, Sadducee because they didn't believe in life after death. The Sadducees denied, in fact, the spiritual realm altogether. They, they denied the existence of angels also, as Luke tells us in, in Acts 23, verse 8. And so these Sadducees came to Jesus with a question. and Like we saw last week, they, they approach him calling him teacher or rabbi. So there is an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority, but even if it's just for show. And again, the authority of Jesus is tied directly to Moses as Jesus is asked to interpret the law. So they begin, they say, they say, rabbi or teacher, Moses told us. And so it's going to the law. Remember, they were the supposed experts in the law. Sadducees asked Jesus about leveret marriage. This is part of the, the specifically the, the Mosaic civil law, in which when, when a man's brother died childless, okay, this is Old Testament civil law. When a, when a man's brother died childless, his brother was required to marry his widow so as to father children for his brother. Okay, this is that's called leveret marriage, and, and it was. It was really, even by the time of Jesus, it really was, was not very often put into practice. But it was part of the, the, the civil law, the laws of, uh, the, the civil laws of, of Israel for that particular time. And, and the, the reason for it was so that there would be, because of the importance of, of inheriting the land, that they would make sure that, that someone's name didn't die out. So they have offspring to inherit the land. And so, in this in this story that the, again, it's a fictional story, it's a it's a question. Trying, they're trying to entrap Jesus. One after another, of these brothers, these seven brothers, married the woman and then died without having any children. I wonder what kind of a cook she was. Sorry, that was bad. But one after another, these these men died, and then she died, with no children. So they asked Jesus, in the resurrection, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. So one wife, seven husbands, and no children. On the face of it, it seemed like a legitimate question. On the face of it, it's, it seems as though they, they really want to know the answer. But, but this is really an, an example of, of, of reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. This is a a logical argument where you try to reduce your opponent's argument to absurdity. So what they're trying to do is to make the the concept of eternal life seem ridiculous. And they're trying to use the Mosaic law to do it. They're trying to, to pit the doctrine of the resurrection against Moses. Now this is Moses, remember, who appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, very much alive. Jesus has clearly taught on the resurrection, and so they're really trying to pit Jesus against Moses. And they think they've got Jesus trapped. Think again. The Sadducees had asked the wrong question, but now Jesus gives the right answer. Verses 34 to 40. The right answer. Let me read just the first part of Jesus' reply and then we're going to discuss his main points. The sons of this age marry and are given in in marriage. Verses 34 to 36. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from, from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So the bottom line here is that Jesus is saying that their question shows that they do not understand marriage and they do not understand eternal life. First of all, Jesus says that the, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, now this here is not a specific, uh, This when he says sons of this age, it's not a specific reference to gender. It refers to people in general, to male and female. Now, sons of this age could refer simply to those who who live in this world, including you and me, right? The sons of this age. And we can also recognize that that. The fact that that marriage is really the general course of events in the lives of most people, right? Most people statistically get married. However, I think Jesus is actually saying more than that here. Notice that Jesus is drawing a contrast between the sons of this age and the sons of God who are the sons of the resurrection. Right? so on the one side you have the sons of this age the other side you have the sons of the of the uh, sons of God who are sons of the resurrection it's a contrast And I think the contrast here goes beyond just whether you get married or not. I think Joel Green is is correct when he says that, that being a son refers not to literal descent but to character, to disposition and to behavior. For example in in Hebrew, in the, and as translated in the, the King James Version, in 1 Samuel 2, 12, the sons of Eli are described as sons of Belial. Okay, so these biological sons of Eli are, in terms of character and behavior, sons of Belial. Now, sons of, of Belial, it's, Belial is a personification of wickedness. Okay, in the New Testament, Belial clearly refers to the devil. Okay, so these, these sons of Eli are, in terms of character, sons of the devil. But we see the contrast, really the, the polar opposites, In Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So again, we're not talking about biological descent here. We're talking about character. We're talking about behavior. Saying that you might be, be like your Father, like God, by loving those who treat you poorly. So here then, I think that, that being a son of this age focuses on, be, it means being concerned with the things of earthly life. So those of, of this age, sons of this age, are focused on what this life has to offer. Status and honor and wealth and so on. And certainly that describes the Sadducees. Because they don't believe in eternal life. So they're focused only on this life. So they are truly sons of this age. But I need to, to, to say here as well that, that just because marriage is generally a part of this life, at this age only, doesn't mean that marriage, that, that getting married is wrong. Right? Paul really says, says kind of the opposite in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says that, that the marriage is, is good, but singleness is better. Because it means that you, if you're single, you can single-mindedly serve God in a better way, if that is indeed your calling. So then marriage is good, but it must keep its proper place. If you are focused on marriage as an end to itself, as for earthly pleasure, then you are just like the just like the Sadducees. Again, yes, marriage is a good gift from God to be enjoyed in this life, but if you are seeking ultimate satisfaction in your marriage, you'll be sorely disappointed. In fact, I think think a lot of conflict in marriage really shows that we have a wrong view of marriage. That we're looking for satisfaction and for for pleasure in this life. So we don't get that, we get upset. And we we check out emotionally or, or physically or even check out altogether and leave. What happens is, is really you put too much pressure on your spouse. No one can live up to that that, that pressure. You, you've made your spouse a functional God. And so you'll, you'll sin when you don't get what you want. We need to understand biblically what marriage is really all about. God has given marriage as a good gift. Again, this is the normal pattern of things for this life and with purposes in this life. Marriage is is the appropriate context for raising children. Marriage provides companionship. And the ultimate reason that that marriage exists, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, is because it's to be a reflection of the gospel, to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. It's the most important meaning of marriage. But in the resurrection, these things are no longer necessary. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection don't need to have children. And they don't need to have companionship. Human companionship. In the resurrection, you don't need to have children because you're not going to die anymore. You won't need to, to, to populate or to repopulate the new earth. Contrary to what the Mormons teach, men won't need many wives to have many children to populate their own planet over which they're gods. Mormons actually believe that. That's why they're into historically into polygamy. They can have many wives and have many children, and they get their own planet where they're their own god. That's not how it works. You don't need to have more children because heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, are already full. They're they're going to be full of of all the people that that God has decreed would be there. The new earth is going to be fully populated by those whom God has brought there. Jesus also says that you'll be equal to the angels. And and what he's saying here is that it's in the sense that, that you're never going to die. And that you're going to dwell in the presence of God. Think about that. Brothers and sisters, you will dwell in the presence of God forever. You don't need human companionship in glory. You will have communion, human companionship in glory, but marriage will no longer be necessary for human companionship because you will live in the fullness before the face of God. Now you enjoy a foretaste of that now. You do live before the face of God now but you will bodily enjoy dwelling in his presence without a, a a weak body to get in the way without without your sinful temptations to get in the way you will enjoy God in the fullness in glory so there's a promise here of the blessing of resurrection life for those who are counted worthy. But there's also a warning here because not all will be counted worthy to attain to that age at the resurrection. Not all will inherit eternal life. This is an implicit warning of coming judgment here. John 5, 28 and 29. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All will be resurrected, but not all will share in resurrection life. Some will receive the resurrection of judgment. They also will receive a resurrected body, an indestructible body, but that body will be cast in into eternal hell for eternal torment. So there's a warning here. Jesus gives eternal life as the correct answer to the pharisee, sorry to the Sadducees wrong question. Eternal life is the right answer to the wrong question. Again, the Sadducees were not concerned about resurrection life they didn't believe there was such a thing as resurrection life they focused only on earthly life so that that in their in their scheme in their theology through marriage their lives would continue through their offspring but Jesus is focused is focused on eternal life and the fact that your life continues through resurrection. But what is your focus? Is your focus on the things of this life? Or on resurrection life? Are you a, a child, a son of, of this age? Or a son of God through the resurrection? Now Matthew and Mark include a, a further correction from Jesus to the Sadducees. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Matthew twenty two twenty nine, 29. And you cannot get any more wrong than that. You do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. You will not know the power of God if you do not look in the Bible. You will see the power of God, but you will not understand the power of God unless you interpret what you see through God's word. And understanding the Bible is not just just cherry-picking select verses that fit your preconceived notions of what God is like. You need to study Scripture in its appropriate context. You need to look at the whole counsel of God's Word. You need to look at, at all of the 66 books of God's Word. You need to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. But if you're never studying the Bible... You're never going to get the right answers or have the right questions. Are you asking the right questions? Are you looking for the right answer? Are you looking in the right place for the right answer? Well, now let's look at the second part of Jesus' reply in Verses 38 and 39, sorry, 37 and 38. He continues, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. The scriptures, Jesus goes to the scripture to prove that the Sadducees are wrong about the resurrection. So Jesus here is, is proving that the resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. Now it's it's true that, that in the Old Testament, the, the doctrine of resurrection is, is not, it's less developed in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. But it's there. It's very clearly there. Jesus could have gone to the Psalms, like we saw this morning in Psalm 16, or he could have gone to Job, or, or the prophets like Daniel, Daniel 12 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This is very much a parallel to what we saw a few moments ago in John 5. So Jesus could have gone to many, many places in the Old Testament to prove that there is an afterlife, that there is resurrection life. But he goes to the to the text of the the pentateuch right one of the first five books of the bible because the sadducees held the pentateuch they held the torah in the in the highest regard so what jesus is doing here is he's he's using their own supposed area of expertise to show that they're wrong now earlier they quoted moses well the sadducees aren't the only ones who can quote moses jesus can quote moses too Jesus is showing them that they are the ones who were against Moses. They thought that they understood the word of God, but now Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate, is showing them just how wrong they are. And Jesus doesn't just go to some obscure text to do it. He goes to the passage about the bush. Now, the, the chapter and the, the verse divisions in, in the scripture came much later. Uh, the chapter and verses in the, were in the not developed until the 13th century for the New Testament and the 15th century for the Old. But every Jew knew the passage about the bush. And these Sadducees who supposedly grounded their doctrine in the Torah should have especially known about the passage, about the passage about the bush. Because it was there that the Lord God revealed his covenant name to Moses. We know it as Exodus. Three, six, where God said to Moses through the burning bush, I am, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were, were dead long before the Lord appeared to Moses in the bush. But they were clearly still alive. They are clearly still alive. Hebrews 11 shows that, that all of God's people since the beginning of the world believed in the resurrection and eternal life. Hebrews 11 talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and, and all the patriarchs who looked ahead to an eternal inheritance. furthermore, these men, Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, are not reincarnated. Nor have they become merely part of the, the cosmic whole like Buddhism and Hinduism teach. When you die, you will not be reincarnated. Is it appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment? You do not become part of the cosmic whole when you When you die, you will still maintain your identity. You remain you in eternity. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still alive. And they're still alive before God. Your covenant relationship with God will continue just as God's covenant relationship with Adam, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob continues. Consider that little phrase at the end of verse 38 for all live to him. Brothers and sisters, not even death can break your relationship with God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive to God, and you are, and you will be too. G.B. cared. So that all life here and ever after consists in friendship with God. death may put an end to physical existence, but not a relationship that is by nature eternal. Men may lose their friends by death, but not God. you will never lose your relationship with God. We're all eternal. So the Sadducees had asked the wrong question, but Jesus gave them the right answer. He used their attempted attack to teach vital truths about existence and the nature of eternal life. Jesus has parried yet another attack and has deflected it back against his enemies. Verses 39 and 40. The scribes are listening in. And they like what they they heard. They said, teacher, you've spoken well. They like what they heard because it agreed with what they believed. In that narrow area, in the area of eternal life, the scribes who who really worked closely with the Pharisees, they believed in eternal life. So they're like, gotcha, Sadducees. The Sadducees had been silenced. They didn't dare ask Jesus any more questions. But the scribes are about to be silenced as well. Matthew and Mark include after this uh, a, a question from a lawyer who was a scribe where they ask Jesus about the great commandment. What's the greatest law and the, the commandment? What is the, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. Now Luke doesn't record that, but, but here now, Jesus asks them a question. He asks the scribes a question. So now, Jesus asks the right question. Verses 41 to 44. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. After patiently enduring the attacks of his enemies, the the Lord, our Lord now now asks a question to them. Jesus here is is calling into question the ability of the scribes, these so-called legal experts, to interpret Scripture. He's already shown that the Sadducees have the wrong interpretation of Scripture. Now he's showing that the scribes also have a wrong interpretation of Scripture. In the parallel in Matthew 22, Jesus asks the Pharisees directly what they think about the Messiah. While in in Mark, he asks, while the scribes teach why the Scribes teach that that the Messiah is David's son. So Jesus here is raising a theological question. It's a conundrum, very much like the one that the Sadducees had just asked him about the resurrection. So Jesus is now using a question to challenge them. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? And, And so here, Jesus is quoting David in Psalm 110, and in Matthew or Mark 12:36, we see that David spoke this by the Holy Spirit. He was it was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to write down these very words. Psalm 110 is a, a royal psalm describing the King of Israel. But as I've said before, the Psalms, all of the Psalms, find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. This psalm and, and all psalms are ultimately about Jesus. And this psalm clearly describes the king's authority and victory so it's true of david but it's especially true of jesus jesus ultimate authority and victory now if you know from from the bible that that king james sorry king king david rather was a recipient of what's known as the davidic covenant from second samuel 7. that in that passage david had planned to build a temple for the lord to make a, a house for god but but god said no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a house. He says in Second Samuel seven twelve to thirteen. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that David's son Solomon was greater than David in, in many respects, and worse than David in many respects. Solomon is not the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. The fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 is Jesus Christ. He is David's greater son. His name and his throne and his kingdom will last forever. So Jesus' point is that that David can call the Messiah a son, Because he's the Lord. He gives him the title Lord. And again, from from the Jewish mindset that sons were, were considered to be under their fathers. So especially significant in a patriarchal society. But the point is that Jesus is saying that the Messiah as David's son is even greater than David. And Jesus doesn't give the answer to his question. But Jesus is the answer to his question. And we see many times that, that Luke has included references to Jesus as the son of David. And Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke uh, 1 32 and 33 He'll be called, Sir, he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Or blind Bartimaeus in Luke 18 38 39 says, Jesus says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Luke doesn't record it, but at the triumphal entry, the people cry, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus Christ is the son of David. He is the Messiah. He is David's greater son. He is the Lord. Jesus is the answer to his question. And he is sitting at the right hand of God. After his resurrection, he was enthroned to glory and he's now seated at the right hand of God. He is in equal power with God. He is God in heaven. And he will defeat his enemies. He's already begun to defeat his enemies as we see here. These men who are standing before him have shown themselves to be his enemies. And he's begun to defeat them through his answers to their duplicitous questions but the full answer of that question is yet to come. The full defeat is yet to come. We haven't seen this yet here in Luke. And we still await the final fulfillment of his defeat of his enemies when he finally defeats death for all of us. As Daryl Bach says, every possible group has taken a shot at Jesus and failed. Pharisees, nationalists, Scribes, Sadducees, leaders of the people. They've all tried and failed to attack Jesus. Friends, we were all the enemies of Jesus, just as much as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Jesus doesn't answer his own question, but he is the answer to his question. Earlier, Jesus speaks about those who are considered worthy Considered worthy to receive resurrection life. Now, it's a good thing he doesn't ask the question, are you worthy? Because the reality is, you aren't. Neither am I. Going back to the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Have you ever done that? I haven't. Even in my best moments, I've not loved God to the, to the, to the point that, that his, his holiness and his glory deserves. Neither of you. Likewise, the, the second commandment, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. I've never loved my neighbor as myself and, and neither have you. Again, to the point of the great love that you have for yourself, you've never loved another person like that. Only one person has ever done that. Only one person has fulfilled the the great commandment. Jesus Christ has fulfilled that commandment. So it's a good thing that Jesus doesn't doesn't say that only those who are worthy because then nobody would be there except for him. He says only those who are considered worthy or counted worthy will be there. And the only way that you can be considered or counted counted worthy to receive resurrection life is through the worthiness of Christ credited to your account. Jesus Christ loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and he loved his neighbor as himself even to the point of death on a cross. He suffered and died bearing the punishment of your sin and mine. And so when you put your faith in him, the, the record of your guilt gets credited to his account. And all of Of his righteousness, all of his obedience, all of his worship, all of his love gets credited to your account. So you are counted worthy to receive resurrection life because Jesus Christ is worthy to receive resurrection life. We see that in the fact that three days after he is crucified and killed he rises from the grave victorious over sin and death and hell and Satan. This resurrection vindicates him as being not guilty of the charges that have been brought against him. And he then, 40 days later, rises bodily where he now sits enthroned in glory. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be considered worthy to receive resurrection life. You could never do enough. Even if you stopped sinning at this very moment, you'd still have past guilt to contend with, to answer for. But you can't stop sinning even now. You will stop sinning one day. And you're growing in sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, but but you will not be perfect in this life. And so as as we begin to draw this to a close, all of those who have gone before are now present with the Lord. The Lord is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and all of our loved ones who have died in Christ. And those who have gone ahead of us are awaiting resurrection bodies. But they're alive to God right now. They're alive to God right now. But again, they aren't the only ones who are alive right now. When Jesus speaks to the Sadducees about the Lord speaking to Moses in the burning bush, he's speaking about himself. He's already begun to show himself as the answer. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the I am. He's already received his resurrection body in heaven. He has it right now. One day he is going to return and he's going to fully and finally defeat his last enemy and your enemy and mine, which is death. The nihilist philosopher and atheist Nietzsche said, God is dead. And many people respond to that and say, Well, Nietzsche is dead. Well, in one sense, he is. But he's still alive. His spirit still lives and he is is awaiting final judgment. The final resurrection. There is there is a, a resurrection for all, but a resurrection of life to those who are being saved and a resurrection to eternal punishment for those who are condemned to hell, for those who are not counted worthy. Let's just turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians fifteen sixty. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Brother Christian, sister Christian, you are going to enjoy relationship with God for all eternity. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 Jesus is alive. He is the living God and we are alive to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the fact that you are God incarnate. You are the living God. Though you were crucified and killed in the body, you are eternally alive. You have been raised bodily, you have ascended bodily, and one day you will return bodily, and when you return, then will come final judgment. Lord, may we, all of us, at final judgment, receive resurrection unto life through faith in you. Lord, we know that during this time before you return that this is your mercy that you have not returned yet because you're waiting to bring the rest of the sheep into the fold the rest of the wheat into the barn. We pray that you would do so. We pray that you would save the rest of your people. And then you would return to bring final judgment and justice an end of wickedness and rebellion against you that you might receive the glory that you deserve and that we also with resurrected bodies and, and without any more sin will be able to give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, help us to live life in anticipation of that. Help us to live life in anticipation of life with you, eternal life with you that we might grow in our obedience to you and our love for you. For the glory of your name. Amen.